If the last year's done anything, it's made clear how important statistics and data can be to our understanding of the world. It's not just statisticians and public health officials poring over things like positivity rates or infection rates. The general public's also become more familiar with the concepts. But sometimes, highly visible data can lead to some highly suspect conclusions, and bad data, like bad romance, can lead to bad decisions. Damned lies and dubious data are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Joel Best. Best is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. His writing focuses on understanding how and why we become concerned with particular issues at particular moments in time, and he's written about the ways bad stats creep into public debates. Best is the author of several books on the topic, including Damned Lies and Statistics, Untangling Numbers from the Media, Politicians, and Activists, more Damned Lies and Statistics, How Numbers Confuse Public Issues, and Stat Spotting, A Field Guide to Identifying Dubious Data. Joel, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. How did Damned Lies and Dubious Data become such a big focus of what you do? Well, uh, when I was a freshman, I uh, took a introductory statistics class, which is really about all the statistics I know, uh, to be honest. I'm not a statistician. And we had a, a discussion section, and the TA said, there's this terrific book called uh, How to Lie with Statistics. And when I'd been a high school debater, uh, we had a stock opening, which was Disraeli said that there are lies, damn lies in statistics. Uh, uh, we certainly don't want to accuse our opponents of lying, but they have given us a lot of statistics, and then you could you know, go from there. And uh, so the title appealed to me, and I went to the library and read it. Um, and, you know, of course, it's the, this little tiny book, and it's extremely accessible. And it was certainly the most important thing that I read as a freshman. And I continued to think about that book as I see people talking about statistics in the years to come. That's, are, have there been other books that, that, that have inspired you since? I'm just, I, you know, I know your books have inspired me. And, I've, and we have, we, we're, we're huge fans of, like, uh, you know, stat spotting and a field guide to dubious data. I mean, we may have mentioned, I mentioned to you offline that, that Richard and I used your stat spotting book as a, as a framework for thinking about a news and numbers class that we taught many years ago. But, but I'm just curious about what other, other references that, that really resonated for you. Well, I think the, the, the one that's most important is Edward Tufte's, uh, uh, visual display of quantitative information. And uh, when I read that, uh, you know, I was, of course, much older, I was just bowled over. And uh, uh, that, uh, and I've read his other books, his books get increasingly uh, strange, uh, as you go along. But that that first one is uh, really, really uh, uh, compelling. And, you know, I've tried to sell various graduate students on reading it. And I don't know that anyone uh, has ever done so because it it the title is is uh, a little off putting but I think that's a really good book. Well, uh, I just uh, published a piece in Numeracy, which is an online journal for the National Numeracy Network, and it's called uh, How to Lie with Coronavirus Statistics, 
And uh, the point that I, I try to make here is that one of the things that sociologists know is, is uh, there's something called Campbell's Law. And the idea is that if you, if you make a statistic important uh, to people in a bureaucracy, they will try to game that statistic to make themselves look as good as possible. And for the Trump administration last year, the uh, uh, coronavirus statistics became extremely important. And uh, uh, we immediately saw them start to game uh, those statistics uh, so that uh, uh, you had the president at uh, the uh, rally in Tulsa saying, uh, you know, uh, I told my people if we'd stop uh, testing, uh, we wouldn't have so many cases of coronavirus. And, you know, uh, another thing that, that uh, uh, he was talking about was that the, uh, the death counts were inflated and so on and so forth. And, you know, the point here is not that uh, uh, Republicans uh, use bad statistics. I'm, I, you know, when I talk to conservatives, they tell me liberals use bad statistics. When I talk to liberals, they assure me that bad statistics come from, from conservatives. Uh, my view is that people use bad statistics, but the people that were being judged on the coronavirus statistics uh, were the Trump administration. And, uh, uh, you know, the numbers didn't really look good for them. And so they worked very hard uh, to twist them to try and make them look as good as possible. You know, I, I like how, you know, in some of the, the work that you do, you talk about trying to untangle, you know, your, your subtitle was like untangling numbers from media, politicians, and activists. And, and you give all of these examples that, that you kind of just give a laugh test that could be applied to them. So, so things like the, you know, how many people might attend a rally or number of birds killed by buildings, you know, flying into buildings or, you know, suicide rates among certain age groups or other, you know, kind of other things that, that are often reported as exploding. You say, well, let's, you know, carry that forward and think about what's the logical conclusion of that number if you scale it to the population. Could you give an, a, an example or two where, where you do that exercise of saying what's, what's been a number that's been reported and kind of, you know, fo the focus of stories and then what that would really mean and why it probably doesn't, doesn't make sense? Well, um, you know, one that you just referred to is uh, you had people running around saying there are a billion birds killed each year flying into buildings. And, and uh, you know, right away you think, gee, a billion is a lot. I wonder where they got that number. And the official number, the one that had been promoted by a federal agency prior to the billion number was 3.5 million. Okay. Oh. And it's, which is quite a <laughs> that, bit less. Those, are, those are kind of different, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. and, and it turns out that somebody had asked the Fish and Wildlife Commission how many birds die flying into buildings. And, you know, they, they said, I don't know, you know, and they, they looked at the continental United States and they said, well, there are about three and a half million square miles in the continental United States. So figure one bird per square mile, three and a half million birds per year. And that means nothing, okay? I mean, it's, it's a guess. Um, so along comes an ornithologist and he is convinced that this number is, is uh, too low. And you know, if I, if I can go digress for a minute, he uh, started by taking a national sample of two houses. Uh, and one of these houses was uh, people in Southern Illinois uh, who lived in my neighborhood when I taught at Southern Illinois University. And this was an elderly couple and they loved birds. Uh, they had built a, a special house. It was custom designed with the maximum number of windows so they could watch their feathered friends. And they had built a 
bird habitat. They had bird houses and bird baths and bird feeders and all this kind of stuff. They were a bird magnet. And he wanted them to go out each morning and walk around their house and see how many dead birds there were. And, you know, uh, they found about, they did it for two years and they found 17 birds. And I don't know what the other house in the national sample was, but you, you, you sense that there may be a sampling problem here. Um, and, uh, you know, he, I think at some point it, he realized that that probably wasn't the way to, to calculate this. So what he did was he got some statistic from some government agency about how many buildings there are. And he said, well, figure that, that uh, between one and 10 birds uh, fly into windows. Well, at that point, there were about 97 million buildings. And so he said, so the numbers between 97 million and maybe 970 million. And you round that latter figure up and you get a billion. And you can find that statistic all over the place. It's it's in the New York Times, it's on NPR, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it isn't really any better than the statistic of 3.5 million. They're both based upon, you know, some simple guess and extrapolation. Joel, I want to ask, you know, you, we're doing recording this episode the day after the inauguration of Joe Biden, and he mentions truth and lies in his inaugural address yesterday. And uh, I was wondering, as a teacher, how you confront this problem we have, not so much bad statistics, but people believing good statistics, you know, the whole f problem of fake news. What are your thoughts about that, and how do you, how do you talk to students about that? Well, you know, my, my underlying idea is that, that statistics are socially constructed. They, they, they aren't out there in nature. Somebody has to count something. And it always makes a difference what they choose to count, how they go about counting, you know, what they what they want to report, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's not that there are true numbers and false numbers. All all numbers are socially constructed. And sometimes people in the natural sciences get confused about this and they think social construction means bogus or phony or something like that. That's not that's not what it means. It just means that there's a that people are involved in producing the number. The number isn't out there. You have to, to go and count it. And so what I try to get people to do is think about where the number comes from. And you know there are certain clues that might lead you to feel that this you know, particularly deserves some thought. Um, you know, one of the things I'm very suspicious of is big round numbers. Okay, when you, when you know, and God packages our social problems in in even millions, so that you'll hear people say there are a million cases of elder abuse, there are two million missing children, there are three million homeless, etc., etc., etc. And you know, it's like a billion birds. Uh, uh, right away, you have the, the the suspicion that you know that may not be much more than a guess or a ballpark estimate or something like that. Um, the other thing that that uh, you know, I have found true in my own life is uh, when uh, I hear a number and I say to myself, holy cow, I had no idea it was that bad. You know, probably that deserves some attention. Uh, you know, it's it, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense that, uh, 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 the, you know, there's been this hideous problem out there and you haven't noticed it up until now. So, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do is get people to realize not that there are true and false numbers, but that they can inspect how the numbers are produced. 
and make a reasoned judgment about how much confidence they should have. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Joel Best from the University of Delaware. Joel, when you were talking about the bird number, you talked about how this one billion figure was, you know, reported by the New York Times and by NPR. What uh, advice would you give to journalists who are reporting on figures like this? Because, you know, we're there's a, I don't know if you know this or not, but journalists are uncomfortable with numbers generally. It's a stereotype. It's a stereotype that is rife in our field. Um, but, it, but you know, and it becomes an issue that we're most of them were trained as generalists, right? General. So, you know, you're, you're cov- running from covering politics to covering environmental stories to covering a cat show, right? And so you're sort of trying to crunch through a lot of information quickly. And obviously journalists can get sort of wrapped up in some, some of these issues with the number maybe needing more investigation. How would you suggest a journalist sort of dig into sort of some of these things you've mentioned and to make sure that what they're reporting for this broad audience they have access to is as sort of accurate and clear as possible? Yeah, I, for about 10 years, uh, I went to an annual conference uh, where they would, uh, sponsored by uh, Washington University, uh, and they would uh, bring in about uh, 25 journalists and, uh, you know, uh, they'd have a group of us talking about, you know, uh, economic statistics and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of journalists about this and, and this is a problem. And, and, and um, one of the, the things that I think, um, you know, and, and, and I encourage them to do the kinds of things that, that I just said, you know, a, a big round number, you know, watch out. Um, but Um, Another problem is that once a number is out there, it is repeatable, okay? So that you can say, experts say that there are this many things and and, or there are reports that there are this many or whatever. And that statement is true and it will will get past the editor, Uh, but it doesn't say anything about the... the, uh, uh, quality of the number. And you can find really hilarious examples of this where, um, you know, somebody will produce a number. Uh, my, my personal favorite is uh, uh, there are 150,000 uh, people uh, dying from anorexia each year. And uh, uh, this is a, you know, th- this is a number that it started with a mistake. Um, you know, uh, uh, it was in a uh, there was a, a, an interview with Karen Carpenter's uh, mm-hmm. physician, and she was, of course, a pop star who'd, who'd been anorexic and, and who died. And uh, the doctor says, uh, this is a very serious illness. It can, it can kill you. And we think that there may be 150,000 people with anorexia in the United States. This gets picked up by a book published by Harvard University Press, a, a historian from Cornell, okay? Pretty good credentials. She footnotes this interview with Karen Carpenter's doctor and says, the American Anorexia Bulimia Association says there are 150 people dying each year from anorexia, okay? And instantly you have other prominent feminists, Naomi Wolf, you know, who cites this historian, uh, Gloria Steinem, who cites Naomi Wolf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a ridiculous statistic. You know, uh, figure that uh, people who are anorexic are mostly uh, young. Uh, They're mostly female. Okay. So how many young women die each year? All right. Well, take the number of young women 
between, say, 15 and 44. And my students always giggle at this point. And I explain to them that, you know, this is going to seem less funny as time goes on. You know, uh, uh, 44, <laughs> 44 is going to seem younger uh, in, in a while. And, and how many young women die of, of everything, you know, of, 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 uh, of breast cancer, of automobile accidents, suicide, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's about 50,000, okay? What are the odds that 150,000 of those 50,000 are anorexic? Okay, it, you know, and, 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 and this number just travels, okay? And you can't get rid of it. I mean, you, I'm, I'm quite sure that if anybody listening to this wants to Google 150,000 anorexia, they, uh, they can find somebody uh, from, you know, uh, the last year or so repeating this statistic. It's been be debunked and it lives on. A bad statistic is harder to kill than a vampire. Yeah, I, I, when, I, when you're talking about this, I'm, I'm just thinking about how easy it would be to forward something like this in social media. Oh, yeah. You know, that, oh, that in some yeah. sense, this has all been exacerbated yeah. by, by the, the quickness with which you can promote. <laughs> I mean, I think you, you talk about the idea of dynamics of rumor and legend mm -hmm. as part mm -hmm. of what you do. And it seems like this is a, a, a classic example oh, yeah. of where this would happen. Yeah, no, we, we um, uh, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also a member of the International Society of Contemporary Legend Research, and times are good for us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Joel, you talked before about uh, one of your techniques for improving statistical literacy is explaining how uh, statistics are socially constructed. That reminds me, you know, a, a book that had a large impact on me when I was a grad student was uh, Berger and Luckman's The Social Construction of Reality. So do you have other techniques uh, that that you use to improve statistical literacy or that you would recommend? Uh, because I think that's a good one, explaining to students how, I mean, in a way, that's how I talk about journalism, the fact that new, news isn't something that's out there facts aren't just out there that news stories are social constructions that's what they are and that's what and rosemary and i have both worked as journalists in former lives and and uh i think we we both understand that's what we did we were in the game of social construction doesn't mean what we construct is not true it means that we impose narrative on experience and statisticians impose numbers uh I think, and and narrative. I think this is a difficult con concept to sort of grab hold of, but talk a little bit about improving statistical literacy, especially as John points out in a time of uh, social media where you know these bad stats just run rampant. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm really a one-trick pony. I mean, th this is you know when I when I do statistics, this is what I do, you know, and I I keep trying to. Um, you know, I, I run into examples, um, um, you know, one that interested me a lot uh, a couple of years ago was uh, uh, income quintiles, okay? And when, when people are talking about how much or how little social mobility there is in the United States, uh, they always wind up talking about quintiles of household income, all right? And uh, this is the reason they do that is that the government produces this <laughs> information for you. Uh, it's in the, uh, uh, I think it's the American Community Survey. 
And uh, so it's it's very easy to just look it up. No, there's a new number every year, and, and uh, uh, you can do it. Uh, what is very strange about this is that people do not understand what quintiles of household income are. You are not you are not doing a fifth of the population, which everybody assumes you're doing. You're, you you would assume that you know each quintile has a fifth of the population. It does not. Each quintile has a fifth of the households. Okay, and so if you compare the top quintile with the bottom quintile, one of the things you're going to find is that there are a whole lot of single person households, particularly elderly people, okay, who have very low incomes and they're widowed or, or widowers and, and uh, uh, they, they are living on their own. And, and, you know, it turns out that the top quintile which is, is uh, described as the dream hoarders and everything else, um, uh, the top quintile uh, contains about, I think, 26% of the population, okay? And, and the bottom quintile contains, I've, I've, I now have forgotten, I'm going to make up a number, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, 16% of the population or something like that. And, you know, this is, these are numbers that social scientists use. I mean, you start talking about quintiles of household income and you're even out of the realm of journalism uh, by and large. Uh, uh, sociologists are throwing these numbers around and we're not really thinking about what they mean. We assume that, you know, it's intuitively obvious what they mean. So, you know, again, you have to ask yourself, what is it, you know, that this number is? How did it get produced? How is it being used? And even, you know, in social science circles, this is important. I want, there's been such a, I don't want to say backlash, a growing distrust of, of data, of science, of sort of facts. And, you know, and I'm always telling my students, you know, you're a journalist, you have to be a skeptic when you approach anybody because everyone's pushing a narrative. I wonder how you balance, and this sort of seems like you're also arguing when it comes to numbers and data, you should be a skeptic of where things are coming from, sort of. And I wonder how do you how do we promote this sort of healthy skepticism in this environment where it feels like people are primed to distrust any number they don't like? Well, yeah, and and I think that the, you know, uh, uh, not to beat up on on the Trump administration, but but uh, you know you know you'd think Trump would have been a a rich source of bad statistics, but in fact uh, he didn't use any statistics. He was, he was always talking about a lot. You know, <laughs> it's, it's so, you know, it is, you know, he, uh, he wasn't really into quantifying things very precisely, but we need statistics. Okay. It, we, we can't get away from this. We live in a big, complicated society and we are not going to be able to understand it by just relying on anecdote and our own personal experiences, because each of us is living at some particular place. In, in society, and we're only seeing a small part of the story. So we're gonna have to use numbers. We've, we've gotta have numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, we can't just take numbers and use them as clubs to beat people with. You need to be able to understand not just who the, the other guy's numbers are, but you ought to be a little careful about what your numbers are and make sure that you really know what the, what's going on. So. This this isn't something that has some magical solution. It isn't that you can you can trust uh, figures from here and not from there or something mm-hmm. like that. You've got to think about this stuff, and you need to slow down a little bit. And sometimes that's you know uh, 
that's very difficult. The interesting thing I know is is when you talk to reporters, like I've talked to reporters who, who have the, you know, they go in this special room uh, that the government has where they're going to release the weekly uh, employment figures or something like that. And this is all, you know, th there's 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 a time limit on, on uh, when you can see the information and then, the, you know, uh, you're embargoed from using it for, for so mm -hmm. long and so on and so forth. These guys are really good at their numbers, okay? They know, you know, they understand the limits of, of, of these numbers. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard when you're, you know, doing something else. And if you're, you know, it's, it's great to have a specialized beat like that where you really mm -hmm. understand uh, figures. But, you know, that's a luxury. Almost nobody has that kind of... Uh, well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Joel, thank you so much for being here today. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 